0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our good bishop. And we always like to start with the Angelus. Do you have an
1: intention for today's Angelus? Since we're in the month of November, I think it's good to continue to pray for the dead. And I think maybe to pray for all the faithful departed of our diocese. Excellent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us
0: sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God,
1: that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray pour forth we beseech you O lord your grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of christ your son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same christ our lord amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen
2: welcome to truth and charity with bishop Rhodes. brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union on this all-new episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, talks about the life and legacy of soon-to-be-blessed Father Solanus Casey, a Capuchin simplex priest who lived at St. Felix Catholic Center in Huntington for several years. Then it's on to the Catholic Catechism as we celebrate its 25th anniversary. Bishop Rhodes talks about the history, format, and significance of this authoritative source of church teaching. Afterwards, it's on to another church resource, the Bible. The best ways we can read it, understand it, and pray with it. The show wraps up with Bishop Rhodes answering questions submitted by listeners. Questions in this show include how the Pope chooses bishops, the qualities the Pope looks for, and how the pontifical secret plays a role in the selection process. Plus, whether or not we can receive communion twice a day, and how we can get a seat at a papal mass or audience in Rome. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop.
0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and this Saturday we have another beatification, this one a little bit closer to home, the beatification of Solanus Casey.
1: Yeah, isn't it amazing? This is the third beatification to take place on U.S. soil, and the second one was just just a couple months ago with <laughs> yeah. Father Stanley Rother, which I was so happy to be able to attend in Oklahoma City. But this Saturday, someone closer, Father Solanus Casey, this great simple Capuchin priest who lived a number of years here in our own diocese mm-hmm. at St. Felix Friary in Huntington. So we have a special connection to this this priest who will soon be blessed Solanus Casey. Does his being in Huntington
0: did that kind of start something because we've got a lot of things in Huntington with our Sunday visitor and things like that
1: was did that kind of spring out of his presence there do you think? No, no. Uh, that would have been separate. Um, okay. but it was an important place for novices of the capuchin order capuchins are a branch of franciscans Mm -hmm. and for this province i guess the headquarters is in detroit but but they had their novitiate in huntington and um why they chose that i I have no idea i'd have to look back in the history maybe someone donated the land but there were hundreds and hundreds of, of capuchins who received their religious formation there now, Father Solanus was there later in his life. He was assigned there. I've met some people who have talked about having met him. You know, yeah. he died in what, nineteen fifty-six or fifty-seven. Nineteen fifty seven, yeah. He died he died the year I was born. Huh. And um, so there'd be people who who are elderly today who um, maybe as kids remember him. Sure.
0: You mentioned that he was a simple priest uh
1: also known as a he was actually known as a simplex priest can you explain what that is yeah we don't have that anymore but back in those days and this is like early 1900s i think where some men were ordained priests but because it was considered that they weren't didn't have enough theological knowledge and understanding that they were not allowed to preach homily Mm -hmm. or hear confessions but yet they were still allowed to be ordained priests now we don't do that today Mm -hmm. um but i can only imagine how he must have felt or or other priests who were ordained but they didn't have the faculty to preach or didn't have the faculty to hear confessions because there are ordinary responsibilities of a priest i mean that's part of being a priest so it's interesting how even as a simplex priest though, he had such a huge pastoral impact on people. People came to him for pastoral care. He was the doorkeeper and they would come to him and for spiritual advice, um, to ask him to pray for them. And then how he became famous was all the healings that took place. Of those many
0: healings, uh, Do we know much about the miracle that took place that was uh, responsible for his beatification?
1: Yeah, um, it was a woman who had an incurable congenital skin disease. I don't know the specifics, but she was a woman from another country who came to visit friends in Detroit, and she asked to go to the solanus center that's where his tomb is in detroit the tomb of father solanus to pray there but she didn't go to pray there for herself she went to pray for other people who needed healing and then while she was praying there there was like a inner voice saying to her pray for yourself and that's what she did and it was an instant cure and this was a lifelong skin ailment whatever it was but it was an instantaneous healing and she went to five different doctors and they all agreed that there was no scientific explanation for her cure eventually it came to the attention of the archbishop and then it was presented to rome for the medical team there and they declared that there was no natural explanation this story of the
0: guy who was looked at as not being bright and ends up kind of with a a lowly job of answering the door seems to be a common one amongst our saints and in fact slightly different scenario but blessed stanley rother was known for really struggling with seminary Uh, what can we learn from these saints who weren't necessarily known for being the best and the brightest uh, but were still humble servants
1: and great saints that's a great question you know i'm Also, think about another saint connected to our diocese because of the Congregation of Holy Cross. Congregation of Holy Cross is very well known for great teachers, Uh the education of our Holy Cross priests and brothers and sisters. But so far, the congregation only has one saint, St. Andre. What was his job? (laughs) He was a doorkeeper also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and ended up, you know, responsible had that beautiful devotion to to Saint Joseph and built the Saint Joseph Oratory up in Montreal. Right. And again, thousands of people were impacted by Brother Andre. He wasn't even a priest and he was a porter. I think of him and Father Solanus very similar and both had a lot of miracles, a lot of healings. Yeah. But I think it does kind of bring home some truths of the gospel that God chooses the lowly. And also, blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. I think they exemplify what Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the humility and the simplicity of these saints is is really a model for us, for all of us, who think sometimes that we're so educated or so sophisticated or whatever but nothing wrong with good education nothing wrong with any of that but if it makes us proud we mm. think we're better than others then that's a big problem
0: well for people that are interested uh, you can find out more information about soon to be blessed solanus casey at solanus center.org and also people could stop by the St. Felix
1: Friary in Huntington I've never been there oh yeah you should go you know they his room is exactly as it was when he was there really it was left untouched so you can see St. Felix Friary is back in Catholic hands thanks thanks to John Tippman, who bought it uh, some years ago and it, we use it as retreat center mm-hmm. it's a beautiful place really and, and uh, the Tippman Foundation had it all restored But even when it was in Protestant hands for about twenty years, I think, they didn't touch Father Solanus's room. Really? So I think it's great. You can go there and see it. Yeah. All right. Well, coming up, we'll have some conversation on the Bible and
0: the catechism right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop, and we have two things that we're kind of celebrating right now. One is the 25th anniversary of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It comes in uh, several different print forms and also freely available online. If you just do a search for a Catechism of the Catholic Church, you can read it either off the, the USCCB's website or the Vatican website or many other places. Uh, what is the purpose of the Catechism?
1: Well, basically, you know, we're, here we are, the 25th anniversary, hard to believe. What a gift St. John Paul gave to the church by having this catechism, because it is really an authoritative compendium of Christian doctrine. What do we believe? The catechism is divided in four parts. Since there's so much confusion sometimes about the faith or religious matters in general, Someone wants to know, what does the Catholic Church teach about this? You can go, one source, you yeah. know, authoritative. So the first section is about, um, you know, the basic doctrines of the church. So using the Apostles' Creed and also the development of the Nicene Creed. For example, if you want to know, what do Catholics believe about the resurrection? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a section on the resurrection. Or what do Catholics mean when they talk about, the virginal conception of jesus or you know so that's the first part but then it's not just what we believe but then basically the second part is is really about how we celebrate our faith so it's all about the liturgy and the sacraments and how we receive god's grace so the worship of the church and that obviously is it flows also from the the teachings is you know what we believe about the proper worship of God how we give glory to God and how we become sanctified by God so the second part is is really good the third part is about living the faith living the Christian life what is it to live a moral life so it looks at the 10 commandments in depth and all the different ethical uh, considerations. What does it mean to live a life in Christ? Looks at the Beatitudes, etc. And then the fourth part is, is really important, is on prayer. This section is really beautiful, our Christian tradition of prayer. What is the place of prayer in the Christian life and in the life of the church? And then there's a wonderful line by line reflection on the Our Father, the prayer that Jesus taught us. So basically, uh, those four parts. And actually, the catechism that followed upon the Council of Trent followed that same format, by the way. Uh The profession of faith first, then the celebration of the Christian mystery, second, the sacraments, third, life in Christ, and fourth, Christian prayer. So just as a catechism was composed 450 years ago, after the Council of Trent, it's called the Roman Catechism, and the Pope promulgated it, That was an important reference work for for Catholics for centuries. So after the Second Vatican Council, well it was actually 20 years after the council ended, they had an extraordinary synod of bishops to look at what had happened in the past 20 years since the council, and that's when the suggestion came. We need a catechism, just like they had after the Council of Trent. So Pope John Paul agreed, set up a commission of cardinals, I think led by well cardinal ratzinger and cardinal shaneborn were very involved in it i think it took them maybe five or six years and all kinds of consultations and to put it together and then it was promulgated in 1992 so we're celebrating now the 25th anniversary of the catechism and as i said i think it's been a great resource for not just for bishops but for every catholic
0: yeah now, you brought with you a couple different versions here. You've got uh, the regular one that just has all of the the text in it, but then they've come out with one specifically geared towards youth. And before you explain the UCAT, the the main catechism isn't that hard to understand, I wouldn't say. Uh, it's fairly easy to read. I, it's not like a novel or anything like that, but right. The it, it really is, I think,
1: made to be read by anybody. Yeah, I mean, the the universal catechism, the catechism that we're talking about is, I think, very readable. Some people may find it a little dense, but it was meant also to be that individual Episcopal conferences... Or different countries could put out their own catechisms based on this. So, we did in the United States, we have the US Catechism for Adults, mm-hmm. which I would say is even more readable. Okay. Yeah. I agree with you. I don't think the Universal Catechism is too difficult. But the US Catechism, for some who might find the Universal Catechism a little too dense, uh-huh. The U.S. Catechism is easier to read. Now, it also has some adaptations. It has examples of saints from the United States and things like that. It has questions for discussion. So the U.S. Catechism is great for like an RCIA program. Uh Although you could use the Universal Catechism also in RCIA. Now, one difference, a lot of us grew up learning... Question and answer format of the Baltimore Catechism. And I remember as a kid, we had to memorize a lot of answers and that. And some people really like that question and answer format. Mm-hmm. This catechism is not question and answer, but the church did come out with a, what's called the compendium of the catechism, which is question and answer format, Uh and they really did a good job on this. I highly recommend it for people. It's like the whole catechism, but it gets down to the most important points, and it's all in a question and answer format, so there's like, I don't know, 600-some questions in it, and some people really like that, Um, or 600, let me see. No, five hundred and ninety-eight questions. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> um, and it also has prayers, common prayers at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, the new, the the new printing of the Universal Catechism also has prayers in the back. But I think that's good. Some people just like that question and answer format, and it kind of reminds me of the Baltimore Catechism that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it meant to be read cover to cover or more of a reference or either one?
1: If you're going to do a cover to cover, I think you you don't want to do it in just a few sittings. Mm-hmm. Because you really got to let it digest, I think. So I would recommend doing it in the course of, of several weeks. It's not something that you can just read cover to cover, I don't think. But it can also be used as a reference. Like, I'll use it as a reference a lot. I mean... If a person just has a particular question, oh, what does the Catholic Church teach about indulgences? Well, then just look in the index. Then you can go and see in a couple paragraphs what the Catholic Church teaches about indulgences. Uh-huh. Or, oh, I've been wondering that, uh, you know, the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, what do we mean by that all the time? So uh-huh. you just go and look in that section. So I think it's a great, handy reference guide. Yeah. And then the UCAT is who's the target audience would you say for that i would say teenagers young adults but i would want to be a little careful it's not on the same level of authority as the universal catechism okay it again it, it's like the u.s catechism it follows the four sections very well it's a really excellent book the ucat but it was really done by one of the episcopal conferences the episcopal conference in austria hmm. And so I think it was originally then in German, but then it got approval from Rome, so it's has the imprimatur. Mm-hmm. But it, the language is different. It's it's very it's that question and answer format again, but it's written with youth in mind. Yeah, and they have a lot of like on the in the margins they have definitions of things and quotes of different doctors of the church or different writers. Definitions. It has a lot of art throughout it so i think it's a great resource great to use with young people yeah i think it's much more inviting to young people than using the regular catechism although there's there's young people who don't mind reading the regular catechism but this might engage them more just because it is geared to young people another thing another book
0: that uh, we celebrate this week we're in the middle of national bible week which is november 12th through the 18th and for somebody that maybe would like to read the bible more what would you say is the best way to get into the bible is it to read cover to cover start with the new testament is there a particular book that you would recommend or a guide
1: well i would probably always say to someone to begin with the four gospels Mm -hmm. you know about the life death and resurrection of jesus there's no right or wrong way. Some people may want to do it cover to cover. Nothing wrong with that, uh, I would say. But I think it's, uh, it's good to have a good commentary because when you're reading the Bible, it's, you know a lot of questions can come to mind or one wants to know the context a little better, the uh-huh. historical context, or how the church has interpreted certain passages that might be confusing so i'd say get a good catholic commentary it depends on how much one wants to delve into it i personally get a lot more out if i'm focused more in Ah. other words rather than trying to read it cover to cover i like to get more deeply into it like take one book of the bible and read it slowly and read a commentary so you're trying to understand it and then pray with it that's kind of the way i would recommend going to bible study that's helpful too because then you're reflecting together with mm-hmm. others hopefully you have a good leader who's you know you want to make sure it's yeah. good good theology that's uh-huh. being presented when one is studying a particular book of the bible so basically
0: quality over quantity that's my view yeah. yeah yeah any commentaries that
1: you would recommend well my favorite right now oh man i'm trying to remember the name of the publisher It's a commentary. Actually, actually I've sent it out as Christmas gifts. Uh Each year I've been giving a different gospel commentary to our priests and deacons and seminarians. Uh, Baker, I think, is the name. It's a Catholic commentary. Oh, my goodness. And I I refer to it a lot, but I'm drawing a blank on the exact title. Um, Does it cover the whole Bible, or do you get a commentary per book? There's still – for each book, but they're still in the process, and they haven't even gotten to the Old Testament. It's begun with the New Testament. They're not finished with the the New Testament commentary yet. But I really like the authors. But there's other commentaries out there. There's the Navarre Bible commentary. Mm -hmm. I used to use that a lot. There's the Anchor Bible series. Some are more academic and exegetical, like the Jerome biblical commentary, things like that. But I think that's more – what would i say a little more tedious i think for the average person i like more of like a theological commentary okay which is going to really get to the uh not just like the derivation of particular words and all that kind of stuff but but really what's the theology here what's the message and that's important to see the original context but like we were talking about that reading last week and on the show about the cleansing of the temple we mm-hmm. were trying to delve into what that meant what i like about some of these catholic commentaries too you can look at what are the fathers of the church mm-hmm. how did they interpret this passage what were their reflections that's beautiful to find out too so it's good to see the context the historical context but also kind of a spiritual uh theological and spiritual reflection on the text as well what about translation of the bible what about it? There are
0: so many different versions oh, out there. Oh, you know, okay. People might uh, <laughs> find their Bible hard to read and might realize it's a an odd translation and maybe there's a better
1: one to it, read. Do you yeah.
0: have a, a favorite translation? Yeah, I
1: like the Revised Standard Version. Okay. That would be my favorite because I think it's, it's uh, first of all, it's good. A good translation from the Hebrew and the Greek from the original languages, which is, I think, great for accuracy purposes. I think the New American Bible, the Revised New American Bible that we use at the liturgy is also very good. Those would be the two texts that I I prefer the most, the RSV and the NAB. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people might like something else. I mean, they might like the elegant English of the King James Version, but, um, no, I, I like those.
0: Now, the King James Version might come in a couple different versions of some would be missing a chunk of the the books
1: of the Bible from the Catholic Bible. That's right, because King James is a Protestant version. Definitely have to keep that in mind. The Douay-Rheims version is the old Catholic version, which also is kind of beautiful in the language, but it was a translation that we have from the Latin, so it's not as precise as a translation that's directly from the Hebrew and the Greek. And The Vulgate is the Latin translation, yeah. And Catholics didn't add books to the Bible. The Protestants took books out of the Bible. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, in a sense, what we would, you know, there's seven books we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We call them the deuterocanonical books. It's basically the second canon. Deutero means second. Protestants refer to them as apocryphal, which means it's kind of, they don't consider them inspired word of God. But there's a long history of this. By the way, it's not just those seven books. Protestant Bibles also don't have portions of the book of Daniel. Hmm. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Or the book of Esther. So how many of those seven deuterocanonical books can you name, Kyle? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I know the first and second Maccabees. That's right. Very good.
0: Uh, Tobit and Judith. Tobit and Judith. Very good.
1: So that's four. Four. Three more. Uh, I forget after that. What's the first gift of the Holy Spirit? The first one, wisdom. Very good. Okay. The Book of Wisdom. Okay. Uh. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, I don't know how to give you hints on the other two. I was trying here. Uh, okay, I'll give you a hint on okay. one. Sometimes this book is called Ecclesiasticus. Sirach. Sirach. Very good. Okay. Okay. One more. It's a prophet that begins with the letter B. B. (laughs) Baruch. Baruch. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, basically it's kind of complicated. I'm going to try to explain. The Catholic, uh, we're talking about Old Testament books. So the Catholic Old Testament follows what's called the Alexandrian canon of the septuagint okay let me get septuagint is the greek translation of the old testament okay and the alexandrian canon of the septuagint the old testament which was translated into greek and that happened around the year 250 bc That was what we saw used in the early church. They would use this Greek translation, Mm -hmm. the Septuagint. Now, there was, with the Protestant reformers, they followed what is called the Palestinian canon of scripture, which is only 39 books instead of the 46. Actually, that Palestinian canon wasn't recognized officially by Jews until around the year one hundred. So why do Catholics follow the the Alexandrian canon and Protestants follow the Palestinian canon? I think basically there are parts of those books that some of the Protestant reformers didn't like. I mean let's take Second Maccabees. Second Maccabees supports prayers for the dead. So maybe one of the reasons in the 1500s they didn't want to conclude that book was because it had this idea of praying for the dead. Mm -hmm. It comes down to a matter of following basically what the early church followed. You know, when you read the fathers of the church, for example, they're using the Alexandrian canon that includes these seven deuterocanonical books. I mean, you look at St. Augustine, he referred to these these other books and other fathers of the church. It comes down to a question of who has the authority to determine which books belong in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Who made those that determination that these are these books are inspired by God? Well, that was a decision of the bishops of the Catholic Church uh-huh. back at the Council of Carthage in the 4th century. And then that was affirmed later in the Council of Trent, etc., the Catholic canon always included these deuterocanonical books. So I kind of have simplified a rather complex issue, but I think that's maybe all we have time for. Sure. Do you write in your Bible? Well, it depends on which Bible. I do have one Bible that I write in, uh-huh. uh, but I don't write in my other one. I have, diff- I have probably about seven or eight bibles yeah as i said the rsv is my favorite and it's really nice i wouldn't write in it but there's another bible i have where i have a lot of notes in the margins what uh how long have you had that bible oh since i was a seminarian really yeah it's really beaten up yeah yeah, yeah. falling apart
0: <laughs> all right well if you have a question you can ask it by going to redeemerradio.com/slash/askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598. And coming up, we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you have submitted. Our first question is Do vestments belong to the priests? or to the churches in which
1: they serve, where are the vestments made or purchased? Oh, it's an interesting question. I think a lot of vestments belong to the church, mm-hmm. but there might be some that belong to individual priests. For example, I have vestments that belong to me that I purchased with my own money uh-huh. or that I received as gifts. Right. They belong to me. But if I go to the cathedral, I might use one of the cathedral vestments that belongs to the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And I think that's typical. I think priests sometimes the vestments are belong to the parish. So if a priest gets transferred, he has to leave them there. Mm-hmm. But he might have a couple of his own mm-hmm. that someone gave him as a gift or that he bought with his own money. Then he can take them with him and where are those made and purchased? There's different different investment companies. Um, there's Alma that's in the United States. Some are made in Europe, different countries. I know there's a belgian company called slab inc there's companies in rome and different styles of vestments mm-hmm. some are more roman style some may be more of a gothic style some may be more contemporary style so there are different vestment companies can grandma go to the fabric store and
0: buy some fabric and make vestments for oh parish? yeah
1: yeah they can do that yeah it's i don't think it's Well, I don't know. I would think it's not that easy to make. You (laughs) have to get the right shape. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if the fabric store has patterns
0: for priest vestments. Right. Our next question is, why do some priests wear black pants and a shirt with collar while others wear a long habit? Is that the right word?
1: No, a habit is for a religious. The right word would be a cassock, Mm -hmm. a black cassock. Or in the case of a a bishop i have a black cassock but it has a bishop's cassock has the red buttons anyhow as far as why do some wear a suit and others wear a cassock it's totally up to the priest i mean they're both what we would call ordinary clerical garb so most priests in the united states i would say most priests prefer just wearing the black suit maybe wearing the cassock occasionally Mm -hmm. but there's no rule all right
0: someone sent in the following question what do you think about halting all catholic athletic events on sundays in the diocese sunday should be a time for worship and family and
1: athletic events seem to take away from both of those i've had that question before kyle there's some people who don't like the fact that our uh Catholic uh, CYO or up in the South Bend section, sides called the ICCL, that they schedule games mm-hmm. on Sundays. The Dawson policy is they can't schedule games Sunday morning, I think up until okay. one o'clock. And I think that's reasonable because we don't want sports conflicting with uh, the Sunday Mass obligation. Sure. I mean, that would be terrible if people went to a sporting event or their kids had to be and then they miss mass. So that norm was uh, has been in place for a number of years before I was even bishop and I support it. We have to make sure Sunday mornings are off limits so people can get to mass and the children can get to mass. But there are some, a few parents who have complained that uh, really we shouldn't have any athletic events the rest of the day. I leave that up to the leagues. These, By the way, CYO and ICCL. It's really uh, parishes together organize this, not the diocese. But I think the consensus is they want to have the athletic events on Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings. And I don't see anything right or wrong here. I mean, I can understand people who maybe want to have it as a time where the family is together or apart. I would only outlaw it if it was a violation of the precept of Sunday. You know, I don't think sports or recreation is a violation of the Lord's Day. Okay. It's not servile work. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a prudential judgment. I mean, I understand if a family says, you know, we're we're always running here and there. We just want to have Sunday as a family day. I understand that. But then they have to make a choice, mm-hmm. you know, because if the league isn't going to change, they can't force that on everybody else. Other people may say, oh, we love having a baseball game or basketball game on a Sunday afternoon our families together we have fun yeah. it's relaxing so people have different perspectives on sure. this
0: and there are options you can right. you can choose to participate or not to participate if exactly that's yeah
1: you to do as a family and if if the CYO if a lot of people felt that way then the CYO board might want to change their policy mm-hmm. you know i don't but i from what i gather the great majority are fine with it Alright, well you can ask your question by going to
0: RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 and we have more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop asking questions that you've submitted Someone asked How does the Pope choose which priests will become bishops?
1: Well, there's a a huge consultation process that's confidentially carried out. The Pope has a representative in the different countries. For example, here in the United States, he's called the Apostolic Nuncio. He's like an ambassador, Mm -hmm. lives in Washington. He conducts consultation when there's a need of it. Let's say a diocese is vacant. They need a new bishop. He'll do a conf- confidential consultation with the, the bishops of the region, with the priests of that diocese. They'd get questionnaires, and will look at all the qualities. It, they'll be asking about their spiritual qualities, pastoral abilities, the intellectual, their fidelity, all, everything. So they gather all, this and, and lay people will be consulted too, maybe some leaders, lay leaders in the diocese, whatever. All this gets compiled, And then it's sent to, the Pope has a department at the Vatican called the Congregation of Bishops. Hmm. And they're bishops from around the world. And they study all of this that's been sent over. And they present their top three recommendations to the Pope in order of preference. And then the Pope chooses, or he says, go back, I don't want to name any of these. So how does the Pope choose? Well, he wants to have good shepherds. He wants to have... Holy men, men who will be good teachers of the faith, who will be good shepherds after the heart of Christ. So they're looking at all those qualities. They'll also look at what are the needs of that particular diocese. They might say, well, you know, they're, this diocese is doing terrible with vocations. So we need a bishop who's really good in this area of promoting vocations. Mm-hmm. Might be a diocese that half the people are spanish-speaking they'll want a bishop who's bilingual sure. so they're looking also at the needs of the local church as well as the qualities of the priests that are being considered
0: so have you been consulted about priests in this diocese as uh, well, options for
1: bishops? Le- let me partially answer that kyle because this whole consultation process is carried out under what is called the pontifical secret okay the pontifical secret isn't the seal of confession but it's close huh. we are not allowed to talk about like if i am consulted about a particular priest in our diocese or even who am i'm recommending let's say sometimes i'll be asked to, to present three names and give all the background and my experience i am not I am under the pontifical secret. Okay. In other words, I'll get in really big trouble. Yeah. If I talked about it. <laughs> All
0: right. Another person asked the question, can I
1: receive Holy communion more than once a day? Yes. If you attend the whole mass okay. a second time, you can't just like stop in to get communion. You have to <laughs> attend the full mass. Then you could receive a second time.
0: All right. Well, one of our listeners wondered as a bishop, are you required to meet with the Pope every so often to give an update on our diocese? And how does a layperson get a seat at a papal mass in Rome or have the opportunity to shake his hand as he passes
1: by? Okay. Well, the first question, the idea was that every bishop in the world should meet with the Pope every once every five years okay. and give a report on the diocese. That report is called the Quinquennial Report, which means every five years. It's uh-huh. a lot of work to put together. To be honest, uh, and that was in place for many 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 years in recent years the pope has not been able to keep up with it because there's so many bishops in the world to mm-hmm. meet so he's really backed up okay when we go to rome it's called the ad limina visit ad limina is from latin at the threshold of the apostles basically okay. ad limina apostolorum so my last ad limina visit was in 2011 so that's six years ago, and we still don't have a date for the next one. I think, even though it's technically supposed to be every five years, it's so backed up that it's becoming more like every eight or nine years. So that's the first question. The other about getting a seat at a papal mass, or I'd add to that a papal audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could write to my office, and we have a process. My executive assistant is Matt Wood, and he has the process to help people to get those tickets. We we write a letter to to the the U.S. Bishop's Office for Visitors to the Vatican requesting the tickets, but we want to make sure the person's a Catholic in good standing, mm-hmm. We so we want to make sure the pastor's on board, and that's how we get tickets. So then we arrange that, and then the people have to go to the office in Rome to pick them up the day before, but as far as shaking his Pope's hand as he passes by, that's – something i honestly don't know how you get to do that you have to be kind of pushy to get up front but (laughs) i'm just kidding the uh it's very difficult to be honest um the pope does walk down the aisle and all that you might want to try strategically get on the end of the aisle but as far as getting those those few seats that you know you're going to get to shake the pope's hand really that's pretty special circumstances Uh, and i'm not quite sure how you do that (laughs) okay
0: how much in advance should somebody contact the office if they are wanting to get tickets i would say a few months beforehand would be good yeah all right well and also we'll mention that the commentary to the bible that you were mentioning is called the catholic commentary on sacred scripture series from bakerpublishinggroup.com So if people are interested in that, they can check it out. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. This has been another great episode of Truth and Charity. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal
1: blessing? Sure. I always enjoy talking with you and the people, Kyle. Thank you. (laughs) The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome.
2: Join us next Wednesday at noon for a special episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. There will be much to celebrate since it will be the day before Thanksgiving and almost Bishop's birthday. Bishop Rhodes will talk about some of his favorite Thanksgiving memories, traditions, and food. There are many surprises in store, too, as the show is just days before Bishop's 60th birthday. The fun will include playing the Guess the Apostolic Motto game, cake, and birthday wishes from people around the diocese. Plus, we'll see how much Bishop Rhodes knows about one of his favorite foods, black olives. We'll also debut a new segment called Catholic Word of the Week, our first word, transubstantiation. Don't miss this special episode of Truth and Charity next Wednesday at noon with an encore presentation on Saturday at 11 a.m. You can check out previous episodes by visiting RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. While there, you can also submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.